Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Monday, October 23rd, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that webpage and click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. If you do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It also contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. It contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope people will do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives when they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. If you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Alternatively, you can send me an email at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. 
And if we get any of those comments or questions from you, which we greatly appreciate because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work, and if we get a comment or question like that through an email, we'll address it on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time it was addressed on the Internet show so that you can listen back to the archives for your feedback or input. And we'll take it from there. We'll assume that uh, I have repeated it enough times. I'll start here again at the beginning of this show. Anytime during the show, if you're listening live, you can call 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone, even if it seems like we're talking to somebody else or reading or in the middle of a monologue, feel free to press 1. And as soon as it fits the flow of the show, we'll turn on the microphone and announce it by your area code, and we can have a conversation. And it just makes it makes it far more likely that whatever's going on on the show will benefit people when we get input from the listeners actively participating. In the past 12 and three-quarter years, those shows that have been designated as a highlight show or special of a special interest, almost all of them are the result of conversation with people just like you, people calling in with a comment or a question. And um, it's not a coincidence that most of those shows that have been singled out as a highlight show are the result of people adding their own questions, their own spark of the one mind. So if you're so inclined, you may do that now or at any time during the show. Um, It is greatly appreciated. Not that we're trying to create more highlight shows because in a sense pretty much every show holds highlights for somebody and um, so we are just trying to teach the tools and understand them better for ourselves because as we teach them we learn them And the more we teach them, the more they stay top of mind, the easier it is for us to improve the quality of our life experience. And that's our goal here, to help anybody who's so inclined to improve their life experience, moment to moment, day to day, etc., has been a very emotional week or two with people in my own family and people in my caseload going through very intense life events. And I've made powerful use of the tools on a regular and ongoing basis. And it's 
because these tools work so well for me that I participate in the process of sharing them with others. I listened again over the weekend to the podcast by Michael Singer on his podcast, the most recent one, I believe. And one or two other podcasts, and it is um, uh, true for me that that one that I recommended last week is still the, um, it has the most resonance with the kinds of things that we're trying here. Um, So it's season three, episode five, I believe, is the, the one that I was recommending. And... The, the title of it is Experiencing Love and Joy Instead of Fear and Desire. And in a way, that's the essence of everything this show has been around about for the last at least 12 and a half years. But of course, since I got involved with this work, over 19 years ago, every aspect of it, whether it's a support group or the Internet show or the workshops that Michael and Jeannie present, it's all about the same thing. Can we help each other live a more gratifying life? Can we, and one of the ways to say it, several people have said it is, we're just walking each other home. And there's no way to you know, put a, an actual how-to on that other than choose love over fear. In every possible situation where you can stay conscious about it, So, um, we're wide open for comments, questions, answers, testimonials today. Plenty of time to talk about various things. At the end of the show yesterday, or on Friday, I was reading about the specific ideas on the word genius from David White. And it's about a confluence of factors, your mind, your body, your family's bloodline, your energetic input into the flow of life that is different from everybody else's. And it contains a special kind of genius in the the archaic use of the word, just like the any particular place on the planet. They used to refer to it as the genius loci, the idea of this particular place, this particular location, 
different from all others, has its own special energy vibration, beauty, history, its ability to elicit from those who visit um, an energy, an experience, an integration of energies different from anybody else's. And different in a way that adds. I mean, everything is additive in this flow of life, flow of energies, flow of intelligence that we call life. And, um, you know, I was reading over the weekend about the idea that when the Dalai Lama came to America and somebody asked him, so how do you deal with the problem of low self-esteem? And it took quite a while before the translator could help the Dalai Lama understand what was meant by that phrase, low self-esteem. Because quite literally, it was not in his experience. It wasn't in the experience of that culture. It's it's really the product of the Western culture and the high emphasis on individuality and individualism. And um, seeing the false nature of our ego self, seeing the dynamic that we create and put into play and then get buffeted around by, when we judge ourselves as bad or wrong, we judge others as bad or wrong. This is the beginning of wisdom, to understand that judgment itself is one of those, it's a part of that process that the Course in Miracles calls um, the way that perception is an attack on God. So the flow of life, all that is, God, whatever you want to call it, just is what it is. It just does what it does. And anytime we step back and create a perception of it and then judge it as right or wrong or good or bad, it's it's a rejection of the truth of life and the flow of life and love and creative energy in that moment. And it's saying that however life is unfolding is bad or wrong, and we, with our little nine-bit mind, as Michael Rice would call it, the little consciousness that creates our sense of self and our ego thoughts, we know better than the flow of life itself. And... Nothing could be more grandiose, you know, hubris, unweaning arrogance than that that very process. Every time a human being decides that the flow of life is bad or wrong, what's created in that moment is the stress, the contrast, the resistance the pain, the frustration that leads to our low self-esteem. And 
if we're willing to acknowledge that there's a flaw in that process and begin working in a different way towards acceptance and allowance and surrender, we open ourselves to an entirely new experience of life and the flow of life. That's what all this works about, essentially. Understanding how when we experience a pain or a fear or a sadness that's centered in our judgment and thought, it's self-induced nonsense, right? It's my favorite acronym for the the word SIN, S-I-N, self-induced nonsense. So if you're one of us and you have ever had or struggled with a sense of low self-esteem or thoughts of self-loathing and negative judgment, it might be well worth your time to pick up these tools and recognize that every such negative thought is false. That the entire flow of life for the last some of our best scientists say 13.84 billion years has led to everything that you're seeing, feeling, and experiencing right now. And if you can understand that and recognize that whatever your mind can generate in terms of plans and thoughts and expectations and judgments has no comprehension, no ability to comprehend that flow of life that's led to everything that's in existence right now. And that every attempt you make to judge it as good or bad, right or wrong, is a resistance to the flow of life. It's not It's not uh, adding anything to life. It's not participating in a loving or joyful or compassionate way with life. And it's bringing you the very upset that you come to work like this to say you want to get rid of. Michael Rice was somewhere in Oregon a number of years ago, maybe about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. And uh, he, he ran into the gentleman who was the second to the Dalai Lama in terms of um, enlightenment and the practice of the, the Buddhist ways. And he had him do uh, the Why Again, Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop where he introduces the tools. And um, he was so impressed with it that he had him come back and do it a second time. And in the second time he did it, um, that, that monk translated it into their native language so that they would get it even more deeply, more richly. And he talked to Michael and he said, you know, over in Tibet, we didn't need this. But here in America, with all of this mindset and judgment and with all of these distractions, we need this. We need these tools because we need to be able to see the false nature of the thoughts that are so highly revered here in the Western world as the sense of ego and the sense of self. 
And so we have the capacity to help ourselves. The direct application of the tools and if you have any interest in that, let us know how we can support you in living a life that you prefer, a life that, as Michael Singer would say, is just the happiest, most blissful state you can imagine all day, every day, and every moment, even if you're in physical pain, even if your heart is aching because of a love affair gone wrong or, you know, one of your family members or friends dies unexpectedly and you've gone through other traumas, even in those times, with the practice of the tools, one can find access to a bliss state. Area code 828, you're in the air. Hi, Dr. Tim. This is Magda. Hello. Hello. So I need some help and support today, please. Um, And at this moment, I am keeping myself in quite a confused state, so uh, I need a little direction. Um, And one would be to set up a, a worksheet or a mind shifter or perhaps both. And another one would be advice. And what my situation is, is that I'm in a um, small group, telephone group. We meet once a week, and it's kind of a prayer and healing group and meditation. And um, there's one person in the group that I've known for a very long time, and he is a person who has a great deal of stored-up anger, Um, as just observing the history he shared and his actions and behaviors. And and whenever uh, it is brought to his attention, for instance, well, you sound pretty angry right now. How are you feeling? No, I'm not angry. You know, that kind of reaction. And so I know that I'm getting triggered because of his own resistance to uh, dealing with his anger, and therefore I, it's bringing up my own anger. And uh, so I know that I need to do some work over, over my stuff around this. Um, and so that's one set of, uh, one part of the help I need. The other thing is that um, I I actually left the meeting the last time we met. I just hung up because um, I did not know how to deal with it. Um, and And I'm thinking, well, perhaps one thing I could do is instead of leaving the whole group would be to simply say, well, I think I'm going to remove myself from this discussion because um, it sounds to me that you're kind of angry and I'd rather not, I don't see any usefulness in, in dealing with issues when there's anger involved and just, you know, getting quiet and waiting until we move to the next person. Um, 
So help, that's my situation. And um, I would very much welcome your suggestions. Okay. Well, the, the, the first thing is to take another deep breath or two or 12 and uh, <laughs> come into the recognition of what Michael Rice would say is uh, your denial because you're not upset or triggered by his refusal to uh, agree with other people's assessment of his anger. You're only getting resonated into this because of what you're making it mean. What's the interpretation that you're giving it? And that's the first thing you want to take a look at. What do you make it mean when you're having an interaction with somebody and you experience them as angry and they're in denial? And then you experience them as being in denial. What does that mean to you? Well, the first word that comes to my mind is should. I have a big should about that. He should work on his anger. Um, okay, but let's go to what you make it mean. Okay. What do you what, what do you make it mean? Does this is this a situation in your mind where if you keep interacting with this person, you're completely safe, totally safe and secure? Um, or are you giving it some other meaning? If I keep interacting, would I feel totally safe? Yeah, I feel safe, and I have great judgment. That's, you know, definitely I've got okay. a lot so, of judgment. So, so you feel safe, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and if you're feeling safe, why do you leave the call? Um, because my own anger is rising. Oh, wait a minute. You have anger coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, oh, yeah. if you're feeling totally safe, what would be the reason for or the need for anger? Since we know that anger is only this, as a matter of fact, at one point in, in his work, within the past couple of years, Michael Rice got the download that, oh, guess what? Anger isn't even an emotion. It's a drug. So he was, he was doing some conversations. I don't know how long it lasted, maybe a, a week or two maybe a month or so, where he said, you know what, I got this download, and it isn't even an emotion. It's just a drug. Now, whether you want to go that far or not, we always talk about how, and we have for years talked about how, we can recognize that anger is always a secondary emotion. Right? Mm-hmm. It's there to cover up or numb us out to a pain, a fear, or a sadness. So if you didn't have a pain or a fear, which would indicate not safety, or a sadness, then there would be no need for the anger, and the anger wouldn't come up for you. So the first thing you can do is take a look at, all right, what's underneath my anger? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, each of us has our own childhood histories and you know, whether we dealt with people who were angry overtly and did all kinds of violent things, or we, we dealt with people who whenever they got angry, they would just isolate and shut down and give us the silent treatment. But each of us have that we can look at as a power person dynamic, Michael would say. But I would ask you one more time with this little clarification, what do you think you're making it mean when this person has 
what you would call an angry response, and they seem to be in denial of it. Okay, I've got a lot of fear coming up right now. Um, and I'm definitely going, it's, my, my emotions are taking me back to childhood. Um, my thoughts. Um, I think it means that Yeah, wow, your your original question was right on. I think it means that this person is really unsafe to be around because he might verbally attack me at any moment. And and wow, that's coming from a very young child place um, because as an adult, I would think, well, a verbal attack across the phone you know, it's no big deal. But the child that's reacting here, that part of me, is definitely afraid of being emotionally annihilated by what he might say about me. Yeah, that's what it means. Is that I'm emotionally unsafe around this person. Now. Okay, so just breathe with it. Maybe let the shaking happen even more strongly. Maybe, you know, put the phone down and dance around a little bit, jumping jacks, or let your hands shake at the end of your arms. Just breathe. I can put the notepad down, huh? You can put everything down. And you can be with the energy and let it move. Recognize it's just energy. It's all old stuff. can't hurt you any more than it already has. It's perfectly safe for you to be with it and study it as it washes over you. Wow, and this is so different from what I did when I was a kid when I felt unsafe in that situation with my parents and their the accusatory and nasty things. They would yell at each other. Um, I was afraid that I would be the next one, that if I wasn't very, very, very quiet, they might attack me too. So this is really different to do the opposite instead of getting very, very quiet and small and withdrawing like I did last night by leaving the meeting. I can actually feel it and shake it off. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that's really great. Wow. And energetically, I feel myself very, very big instead of 
tiny, tiny shriveling up small, trying to hide kind of small, but very large in my own personal power. Wow. Okay. So notice what opened this door for you. What did I make it mean? And the willingness to honestly say, I'm afraid. I have fear that comes up. When I put the interpretation on this person's anger and this, you know, in this specific situation, it's this denied anger. Yeah. Yeah. I put the interpretation on it that I'm not safe. And unless I'm willing to be honest about that, I can't make progress. I can't move forward. But as soon as I'm honest about that, oh, I'm terrified. If I put the interpretation on somebody being angry who won't admit their anger and they won't work to dismantle it, and I put the interpretation on that that I'm not safe, I bring up my own anger to try and defend myself. And what I did as a child was to leave in the only way I could then, you know, to make myself physically um, as far away from the situation as I could and crumple and get smaller and hope I wouldn't be noticed and hope I wouldn't be attacked. And that's really what I did last night. Well, and so, you know, you can do worksheets on this image that you just had, this memory of being a child with your parents expressing this overt anger toward each other. And you can, you know, remember one of those times and then just do a worksheet on it as though it were happening now or as though you were the the young Magda going through it. And you can also generate a a mind shifter about that, you know, something along the lines of, it's safe and healing for me to be large and visible and fully present when people are angry and in denial of their anger. Ooh, that hit. Yep, that's good. Wow. <gasps> yeah. Large and fully present. Present. Visible. visible. Large, visible, and fully present. Okay, I need to write those words down. Large, visible, and fully. And fully present when people are mm-hmm. angry and in denial of their anger. 
and in denial. Yeah. And all That's we're doing so there is just using words that are coming from your description of the situation that you interpreted as unsafe. And remember, it's not the situation that triggers your upset. It's the interpretation you choose and place on it that has the resonance with your upset from the past. That that is so beneficial, my interpretation. That's always like... You haven't always taught this, have you, about the interpretation? Isn't this kind of it's new? It's been a number of years. It's been a number of years that that has been a key for me. It's not the situation. And how can I know that? Because there are times when that happens, whatever the situation is, and I let it roll right off my back. Right? Mm-hmm. Or... You know, for years I've talked about how I used to do a lot of walking through downtown Chicago areas and there'd be homeless people and sometimes, you know, mentally um, struggling people and they would yell obscenities and scream. And and I I would just keep walking because what's it to me, right? I'm, I'm either... Uh, in my doctoral program and headed toward being a psychologist or I'm already a psychologist and and I don't take it seriously when they call me horrible names and tell me I'm ugly or stupid or I'm tall and bald and whatever and um, I just keep walking I may not even remember to discuss it with people when I get to my next you know internship placement mm-hmm. or, or work and yet if I walk home at night after a long day's work and my wife greets me with the same kind of insult, it has a very different impact on me, not because the words are different, but because I give them a different meaning. Yes. Yes, yes. And so I've talked about that dynamic for many years, And yet, probably only the last four or five that I've been specifically saying, it's all about the interpretation I place on this thing, which has the resonance with a past trauma I've downloaded or that has me generating the thoughts which are creating the negative emotion that I'm experiencing in the moment. But it's not the outside event. Mm Mm-hmm. It isn't. I'm not triggered by the outside event. I'm triggered by my interpretation, whatever interpretation in the moment that I choose and place on it. I have put a big star in front of the word interpretation, my interpretation. And for some reason, that hits home for me more strongly than what do I make it mean. Um, So I'll put them together, and uh, I think I'm going to post it it, around the house. (laughs) Yeah, it is is what you interpret it that creates what you make it mean. 
Exactly. And so it's a really good, you know, combination of words. But again, it's the resonance in the word that stirs up meaning you hold in your mind for it. It isn't the word. Right. Because as Michael Rice talks about so clearly, words themselves have no meaning. They only have the meaning that's contained in the brain cells of the person who receives that vibration that we call a word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I... I'm just amazed that I went through that and I'm on the other side and I feel relaxed and I know I have work to do with worksheets and and I'm going to do this um, this mind shifter but before I leave the conversation I want to just make sure I have have this correctly you said that anger is always a secondary emotion that is covering for our pain or fear or sadness. Sadness, yes. Yeah. And, and, and it, it is it is so directly it is so directly observable that Michael Rice a couple of years ago came out and said, you know, I've had the download that Anger isn't even an emotion. It's just a drug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is another way of saying what a lot of people have observed for a long time, that anger doesn't show up unless a person feels pain, fear, or sadness that they don't either choose to or don't know how to address directly within themselves. Now, as I'm as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, how about fear and sadness also being used as a drug? I think that I did use sadness for a huge part of my life, that it was okay for me to be sad. And so perhaps when I felt fearful rather than getting angry, because that was not okay, I use sadness as a drug to depress my fear, to soften. I'm not sure. Well, explore it and see see what you find out. I mean, like, it's not a, it's not such a common thing that we can say this happens for everybody, but it might be a dynamic that you created because, as you said, um, you it wasn't safe for you when you were a child to express anger directly. Or to even feel it. For so many years I was able to um, just totally suppress any angry reactions. And the other thing to take a look at is what was the secondary benefit that I uh, accrued when I would go into sadness. Secondary benefit, very good. Okay. Um, Because, you know, some people in certain situations, in certain families, if somebody went into sadness, they would be picked on and ridiculed and beaten down. mm -hmm. In other families, if somebody went into sadness, they'd be taken care of. 
Right. And neither of those come to me right now, although, you know, I'll be open to whatever does show up later. Right now what I'm aware of is that when I was sad, I would feel comforted by my tears. I spent a lot of time crying, and I remembered the warmth of the tears, and somehow that was comforting to me. And I rarely cry now. <laughs> and are, are you saying that the situation where you say you rarely cry now is an improvement or are you just noticing it as a change? <clears throat> Um, I'm noticing how far I've come from my childhood. For one thing, yeah, that's a big change. And I'd kind of forgotten about all of the crying I did. And and, uh, so, yes, that I'm noticing. And, um, yeah, it is really an improvement because generally if I'm crying, it's because I'm deeply touched by something in a poem or in a the story I'm seeing in a movie, you know, um, it brings up tender emotions um, of joy, sometimes of of sadness, you know, reacting to the movie. Um, I don't find myself needing to cry or wanting to cry about my life in any way. So, yeah, that's a big improvement. Very much so. Wow. Well, this has been revelatory. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and it's it's a wonderful thing to to get to that point because then we can start to realize, you know, the 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 core of these teachings is that every time I get triggered by the interpretation I'm choosing and placing on life events, mm-hmm. it is a revelation for me if I will accept it. Right? Guy Finley has a whole series of talks that he does about how the lessons we need to learn in life ride into our life on the back of events we don't want. Right. And we don't learn the lesson unless we accept the revelation as being about us if we do any level of blame if we think we're hanging up the phone call because the other person is angry and won't admit it we don't get Mm -hmm. to learn this lesson we reject the revelation and we don't have an awakening and awareness and a growth It's only with allowance and surrender and acceptance of the fact that we are the ones creating our experience of life in each moment. It's not being done to us. 
It's not happening because somebody else is being angry and they won't accept or admit their anger. I'm the one who's choosing an interpretation of life each moment that creates the experience I have in that moment. Full stop. Okay. The way I'm writing that down in my notes is every time I am upset, every time, it is my opportunity to have a revelation. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly the point of of most of these teachings and certainly every one of Guy Finley's talks. Mm-hmm. It's it's all an inside job. Michael Rice would say it's all an inside job. It's all done with smoke and mirrors, etc. Inside job. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Thank you so much, Doctor Tim. Well, I have many thanks for you for calling and sharing the struggle so that the revelation and the process that that leads to revelation can be demonstrated so actively for us. Mm -hmm. For anybody who cares to listen, this is exactly what is happening with each and every one of us every time we choose an interpretation that leads to upset. Mm-hmm. And we always have an interpretation. That's what we're doing. Yeah. We're we're doing this thing. This is this idea that uh, perception was made as an attack on God from the Course in Miracles. We aren't experiencing life as it is. We are creating our best guess about life as it is which is always based on our past experiences and our language and how we were trained by our family and our culture. So none of us is able to see the world exactly as it is. Right. We're just making our best guess. And when I make a best guess about the way the world is, that leaves me feeling this kind of fear or anger as you were You were most aware of the anger, but we understand that your anger was there to cover up the fact that you felt like you weren't safe. And And that was was a big surprise. That was a very big surprise to, to realize that I didn't feel safe because when you first said that, I thought, well, no, that's, that's not at all. I, I was safe. I'm fine. But that was my present adult speaking that was not the child who was triggered the child part of me so it was a great question we have a few more minutes can you um what the note i made under fear was that think about being safe or not safe. And I get sadness, I really get that, but pain, uh, always due to feeling, anger is always secondary to feeling pain, fear, or sadness. So is that pain going to be emotional pain? I'm guessing. Well, I, I, would, I would say it's either. It's either a physical pain or a mental emotional pain. Because for most okay. of us, 
until we're trained to understand that, as Guy Finley would say, our mental and emotional pain is not our enemy. And yet, fear of it, fear of our mental, emotional pain, prevents us from seeing the truth that it's not our enemy. That it has this, as you just used the word, revelation for us. Mm-hmm. So, so in advanced stages of um, personal work, we can have people who experience pain, fear, and sadness, and they don't run from it into anger mm-hmm. or blame. They take that calming breath and turn the focus of their awareness inside and start asking themselves, what am I making this situation mean? Mm-hmm. What do I need to do here to choose love? What do I need to breathe through to allow myself to restore my awareness to my true nature as love? Mm-hmm. And what do I need to do to be able to be compassionate? Beginning with myself and then extending that to everyone Uh, in every situation. Thank you you for that reminder, yes. (laughs) Yes. Beginning with ourselves, yeah. Because if I look at what happened last night, during the meeting and when I decided to break off from the meeting toward the end. Um, looking back on that, I wish that I had been able to be compassionate for him, that he's not in a place, this is my judgment, um, that he's not yet in a place where he can accept that he um, has an anger issue, and so he denies it. And just to feel compassion for him, and be able to uh, radiate love to him. Well, and the reason you couldn't—the reason you couldn't mm-hmm. do that with him—is because you couldn't do it for yourself. Mm. Okay. Say more. Right. Well, because you were—you were there, busy denying that you were in fear. That's true. Right. If oh, you're yeah. Sylvia Borstein and you're in that situation and, and you're being honest about what you're feeling, you put your hand over your heart space and you say, Timmy, sweetheart, you're in fear right now. Breathe, soften, you know, relax a few more times into this breath, and then we'll look at what's going on and then we'll decide what to do. But, Timmy, if you have anger coming up, you must be in fear about something. And if I have compassion for myself, for my own fear, that some other weaker traumatized part of my mind is going to go into anger to try and prevent me from seeing, then I soften and realize I'm okay, I'm safe, and feel that compassion and extend it toward myself, only then do I have the space to extend it to somebody else. Yeah. yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. But there was something about being in fear that some other part of you was judging as not 
mature, not right, not safe. And so you were denying the fact that you had fear, and you just went Mm -hmm. to the anger and stayed Mm -hmm. in the conscious thoughts of negative judgment about the other, which helps you generate or justify the anger. There's another another line from Guy Finley that is so powerful for me as he says we must actively steal from ourselves every excuse to be negative <laughs> angry bitter hurtful whether it's to ourselves or anybody else we must actively steal from ourselves every excuse to be negative because if we don't we will be able to rationalize any level of abuse and the rationalization is the blame it's the judgment Mm -hmm. of this person as being wrong because they aren't going to acknowledge that they're angry and Mm -hmm. they aren't going to be doing their own work and they aren't a safe person to be around etc and i can rationalize not just hanging up on the phone call last night, I can rationalize never going back. I can rationalize talking to other people on that call and saying, you know what, if you want me back, the bright and shining me who is so loving and everything else, you've got to get rid of this bum. <laughs> right? And, and I, I, I can rationalize that. Unless I actively steal from myself every excuse to be negative. Oh, that's a great quote. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, I'm laughing because one of the things I did was to call one of the other group members afterwards, and we chatted about the situation. And I I did not make that ultimatum, but what we did was to make a date to uh, do some worksheets together. So... It's kind of like, yeah, I was looking for someone to help me through my my confusion. Um, so, thank you. Wow. And it's 12 o'clock. Holy cow. All right. Well, you. you're most welcome and deserving. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing and doing that processing. It's very powerful mm-hmm. for everybody who's willing to listen. I'll mute you so you can listen into the second hour. Blessings. Thank you so much. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I'll welcome Jeannie Rice and turn on her microphone. You're on. You're in the air. And perhaps if you're speaking, you're muted. Ah. I was <laughs> sitting here talking to you. <laughs> okay, thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah, you're welcome. Most of this call was Magda processing, and awesome. I hope you have a wonderful show. Thank you. So, welcome everybody to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio, and today is Monday, October twenty third, twenty twenty three. Our calling number is five six three. Nine 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 three five eight one, and press one, and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. While we're waiting on Michael to dial in, um, I'll just say what what we were going through the other day 
was an article that someone had sent us and wanted our feedback, and it was a Stanford scientist who uh, we actually have a video that he did with apes a long time ago. It's called Stressed Portrait of a Killer, where he observed the uh, attitudes of these apes and the bullies and, and all of that, and and they had gotten into some tainted um, meat that had tuberculosis in it. And the ones that died were the ones that were angry and the meaner um, apes. They were the ones that it impacted the most. Anyway, we've got that on, on our website. However, he's come up with another article that says people do not have free will. And so the person that sent us the article and wanted our take on it. So we started on that um, Friday. I actually have put it, and I'll put today's because we're going to continue with that. But under the special shows, um, I'm trying to click. No, I didn't put that one out there. Uh, What I did put out there under special shows, though, was uh, on October 18th when we had a discussion Michael read an article that he had done about the conflict in the Middle East. But I think that when we complete the discussion on this article, we went about halfway through it the other day. Um, it would make a really good show to, to go on to special shows, I believe, as well. And uh, so we're glad that you're with us today. And I'll wait and see. Michael's not in yet on the switchboard, but. Uh, we are going to continue with this. So we've got a, a lot of people on the switchboard today. It's good to see you. And I'm going to hit reconnect on the chat room. It's strange. You know, we it works really well. However, it won't let two people, two hosts, be in the chat room at the same time. And so when I click on it, it clicks Dr. Tim off. So I have to wait until he's complete before I can get in the chat room. And then I have to actually reboot my computer before it'll let me in. Not my computer, but the the uh, switchboard. So I'm getting back into the chat room. So if anybody has a question you want to ask from there. We had our mind shifters and still point breathing this past Saturday, Sunday. And it was an awesome session. Had a couple of people that were either out of town or had family in or something. So they couldn't be with us the whole time. But it was a fabulous session. If you're interested in being part of that, we do it once a month on the third Saturday and Sunday of the month. And we breathe and process on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we process again whatever came up after doing the Mind Shifters and the Still Point Breathing. So if you want to be part of that, please get in touch with us. My my email is Jeannie, J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org, or if you have our phone numbers, you can call them or text us and let us know you're interested. Or on the website, there is a contact us button. So any of those ways, you can get a hold of us and let us know that you're interested in being part of it. And Michael has joined us now, so I'm going to say welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. Delighted that we get to play again, that we get to engage in this conversation about bringing correction and healing to the human organism. And as Jeannie was saying, we started a, uh, a conversation on 
Friday, which I've gotten quite a bit of response to from people that are ready to uh, to take that conversation to the next level. So the uh, the name of the man who wrote the article that we're speaking about that says there's no such thing as free will is Robert Sapolsky, S-A-P-O-L-S-K-Y. And uh, we've worked with some of Robert's stuff in the past. It was probably 20 or so years ago that we came across his uh, his video on baboons and his study in that regard. And apparently he's kind of a reclusive kind of guy and so ends up taking most of his vacations uh, in, uh, in the jungles in Africa working with baboons. So interesting that he's, uh, he's writing a book on uh, now human beings not uh, having any choice. And I'm going to uh, give a, an, an opposing view to that whole idea. And, and he, you said ahead, 20 please. years ago. It was 15 years ago. It was 2008 that he did the full documentary on the stress portrait of the killer. Okay. Well, it's about that time then that we started uh, showing that in intense. Yep. And looking at stress, and and uh, it, that video was actually part for me of uh, the realization that um, how goals work into the process of forgiveness. And if you watch that video, you can see that even the animals that were dying early of degenerative disease, they're stress, although he doesn't say this, I had the brain cells to see this and what he was doing, was caused by goals that were unresolved, that were not fulfilled and not canceled. So it's a really key part of the process. So I'm going to jump in, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit on what we did on Friday just to catch everybody up. And his book is named is called Determined: A Science of Life Without Free Will. And in Determined, he puts forward the fact that if or the idea that if it's impossible for any single neuron or any single brain to act without influence from factors beyond its control, his argument is there can be no logical room for free will. And on Friday, we talked about the difference between decisions and choices. If I say, don't think about the color of your car, you don't have a choice about what happens in your, in your brain. You don't have a choice about what happens in your ear. There's going to be a frequency that comes from the vibrating air. You know, the fact is, I have never said a word in my life, and neither of you. But I do have a little flap of skin in my throat that I know how to vibrate. And that vibration causes air molecules to move. And those air molecules move until your eardrum moves enough in response to them that some little bones in your ear start to move and create an electrical impulse. And that electrical impulse causes brain cells to fire. So nobody's ever heard my words, and I've never spoken a word. I do vibrate this little flap of skin in a certain way. And we define what the result of that is as words and 
I'll have a meaning in my mind. I'll vibrate that flap of skin. Your eardrum will vibrate, and your brain will go, oh, he means this. But guess what? The meaning that came to the mind where the bones in the ear were vibrating came from the brain attached to those bones. It didn't come from me. It's one of the reasons we have so much conflict in the world, because I have certain brain cells firing in me when I vibrate that little flap of skin. And you have same certain brain cells that fire in you in response to it. Now, if they're the same, we communicate, and hey, things are rocking. But this is a, a real key point if you're ever going to develop choice as opposed to live in decisions, you're going to have to take responsibility for your listening. It comes right down that far. If you're not responsible for your listening, then you live in denial. Denial, we have a specific definition in this work for denial. Denial is the act of thinking or speaking as though something outside of me is the cause of what's moving inside of me. Now, when I vibrate this little flap of skin, and those air molecules moved, and your eardrum moved, and those bones moved, and that frequency fired in your brain, that definitely triggered what moved in you. But what moved in you moved in you because it was in there. <laughs> but if you don't know that, if you live in Sapolsky's world of there's no such thing as free will, then you live in a world of resonance, and what your mind brings up in you, you blame the outside world for the most ancient religion on the planet to which most people, including almost every atheist that I can think of, I don't know too many personally, but I've listened to a lot of their uh, podcasts to just hear what they're saying. They're in the, in the world of denial. They, they are very dedicated, devout members of the one world religion of blame. And it's a universal religion that's been around. You know, we hear people in the so-called Christian community who have this big fear game. They forget that uh, Job gave them a lesson about fear and how to create trauma in their lives was through fear. And this fear, fear story about this one-world religion that's coming, that's going to take over, it's going to be satanic, and it's going to take over the world. Well, guess what? It's been here from the beginning. Go back, go back. Thousands of years ago in the creation story, at least in the Western creation story, and you hear about this guy, Adam, who gets created, and then he gets himself into a little bit of trouble, and he tells the world what the problem is. He addresses the creator and says, God, that woman you gave me. <laughs> so something moved inside of Adam, and Adam lived in denial and blamed the creator initiated the, this one-world religion way back then, blamed the creator and the woman, and the woman in turn blamed the snake. So now you've got the first two recorded people in, in that story. It is a story. It is a metaphor. But you've got the first two who now are dedicated adherents to the one-world religion to blame. Find me somebody. Find me somebody in the world today who's not dedicated to that. And as you look at people who are dedicated that, to that, the tendency is to build up hostility, to build up fear, 
to become addicted, to use addictive substances, addictive behaviors, addictive thoughts, addictive, you know, hostility itself is an addiction. When we live in denial, then we, in order to, for the mind to generate a construct, a reality, a perception, that the problem's outside of them, the real problem has to be hidden. You just cut yourself off from choice, Mr. Sapolsky, <laughs> when you did that. The minute you go into denial, you hide the root of what inclines you toward action. And when that's hidden, you have no control over it. It will run you through this law of resonance. So, again, what he's talking about is, yes, in, in the level where physiology is the controller, there is no room for free will. It doesn't happen. However, such a world only exists if we're, if we're acting from the brain. If our only action can engage in is from the brain, then, you know, the brain is a reflection of or is controlled by the multi-generational database called the body-mind unit and whatever energetic patterns are moving in that body-mind unit, right, they're going to incline us toward behavior. However, as far as we know, Humans are the only creature. Now, he's studying baboons very deeply for years and years and years, so I understand. He goes, ah, this is all automatic decision system. That's something we talked about in our, talk about in our Laws of Living course, that, that uh, as far as physiology is concerned, the automatic decision system kicks in and runs the show. And that's, in essence, what he's saying here. However, humans have something different. Humans... And there's no other creature we know of can do something other than what fires within them. And again, as far as we know, there is no creature on the planet that is capable of any new contemplated behavior. You know, you watch the fox, and the fox has got her Dan and her babies in it, and the fox gets this intuition that a storm is coming and takes the babies, and lo and behold, the day before the flood comes through and would have wiped out her babies and herself, trapped them in their den, she was 100 feet above in safe ground. Say, now, see, she chose to do that. No, no. She had an intuition. Living in the world of energy, the message came, and she listened, and she did what survival would demand. Now, what a human would have done or could have done in that circumstance, gets the intuition there's something going on, moved up 100 feet on the bank, put in a layer of sandbags, and built a 3,000-square-foot house. You won't find a fox that does that. You won't find a fox that originates something new. There are slight permutations that take place in the behavior systems as, you know, the energetic patterns would demand, but those, those who live strictly out of carbon-based memory are incapable of moving beyond 
what inclination moves within the system. So suppose it goes on in the article to say, we know we make worse decisions when we're hungry, stressed, or scared. We know our physical makeup is influenced by the genes inherited from distant ancestors and by our mother's health during her pregnancy. Abundant evidence indicates that people who grew up in homes marked by chaos and deprivation will perceive the world differently. Recognizing that perception is nothing but a product of the firing of brain cells. It is, a, you know, the world tells us we see through our eyes. I'm going to offer that's the big, one of the biggest frauds that's ever existed. Eyes don't see, antennas don't see, and all the eye is is an antenna for light. It brings in light frequencies, brings information in, and you can no more see out through your eyes than you could go to the, the wires on the back of your TV and disconnect them and look in the wires and see out through the antenna and see what's happening in the neighborhood. You can't do it. It's a one-way valve. Information comes in. You can't see out of it. We've been tricked into thinking that because information comes in and brain cells fire, and we have this magical ability to take mind energy and turn it into pictures, the mind generates perception. The world we think we're seeing through our eyes, but not true. And if you don't know that, and you think that you're actually looking at something out there, then you are prone to being a card-carrying member of the one world religion of blame, and you live in a culture that by the age of four probably brainwashed you into being a member of that one world religion. So we substitute constructs in the mind, realities, pictures, for the actuality. And of course, if someone has a different reality in the mind, they're going to have a different decision to make with that reality. So he talks about how people who are raised in safe, stable, resource-rich environments are able to make different decisions. And what he proffers is that a lot of important things are beyond our control, and that's true. I, I agree with him there. But like everything, he says, we have no meaningful command over our choice of careers, romantic partners, or weekend plans. And this is a question that's asked. If you reach out right now and pick up a pen, even that insignificant action was somehow preordained to the article questions. Yes, Sapolsky says, both in the book and to countless students who've asked the same question during his office hours. What the student experiences as a decision to grab a pen is preceded by a jumble of competing impulses beyond his or her conscious control. And you'll notice there's no distinction between decision and choice. The words are used interchangeably. They are not interchangeable words. But if you use them interchangeably, then you're going to think we are limited to decisions. And again, decisions are simply a process of resonance. Don't think about the color of your car. Brain cells fire. You can say, I'm thinking about the color of my car. Are you sure you're thinking about the color of your car? Or are brain cells firing? Automatic decision system resonance presents whatever is contained in those brain cells. My offering is, and in alignment with what Sapolsky is proposing, is that most people say what they thought, they'd be speechless. They are simply pushed around by the energetic dynamics within their carbon-based memory. And because they don't know that they're substituting perceptual constructs for the actuality of what's happening in the world, they don't have the ability to consciously interact with the world. 
So he says, when a student experiences the decision to grab a pen, it's preceded by a jumble of competing impulses beyond his or her conscious control. Maybe their pick is heightened because of skip lunch. Maybe they're sub- subconsciously triggered by the professor's resemblance to an irritating relative. Now here's the first sign that in his, his speaking or writing indicates that he's limiting his thinking to that one world religion. So anybody that's listening ever have an irritating relative? Liar, liar, pants on fire. There's no such thing as an irritating relative. It's just not possible. It it seems so in a mind that lives in denial and doesn't know it. It seems so when one lives in denial is cut off from cause within them and therefore does not have the ability to change what's in them that is cause. It seems as though there's a really irritating relative. But the truth is, if you quote unquote have an irritating relative, the truth is that your relative is perfectly fine whatever they are and they do what they do and you have a reality in your mind called irritation. And when your relative triggers those brain cells, because you don't know they're yours, you can't change them, and you use that very data that the relative has resonated in you to build your brain's image of them, and you project that into, or pardon me, over top of the actuality. And now you say the relative is irritating rather than I have irritation and boy, I have this relative that really knows how to bring it up. So when you're a member of that one world religion of blame, you're automatically locked out of the database where most inclinations are sourced. And when you're cut out of that, you can't change those inclinations. And you become one who can only execute, just like the fox. The inclination comes, get up out of the flood. The inclination comes and the, and the fox executes. The human executes and says, I'm going to build a dam. You never find the fox. I mean, the fox has been around a lot longer than humans. You never found a fox or a wild buffalo or a baboon or they never built a dam. Beavers, well, that's in their genes. That's part of their nature. You won't find a beaver that doesn't build dams. It's built into the structure. So it goes on in the article, say, then look at the, and, and, and any place here where we have a, a thought, a question, anybody wants to jump in, push one, and I'd be delighted for you to interrupt and, and open the conversation to, let's look at the finest points we can and see what other perspectives there are. You have a hand up. All right, let's go for it. I believe this is um, Dr. Simpson. Welcome. Uh, Dr. Wright. You got me. Okay. Uh, it's funny you said the irritating relative. Um, Have you got one of those? And, well, it's beyond irritation. They sold $100,000 from me. Uh, we sent them money to buy property, and they kept the money and blew it. So. Uh, I only have myself to blame for trusting him. And, of, of course, in the beginning, there was extreme anger towards him. 
But now I just of realized course. I was stupid. I was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. And that's also part of the reason of, you know, why is this happening to me again? So um reconnecting with you. But your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that if you review the, your, your words right now, you just told me the, about six or eight different worksheets that would be perfect for you to start to engage in, starting from the idea that was probably a power person message that you were given, uh, that you're stupid. Who gave you that message? Where, where did that come from? I mean, I've known you for some time. I, I would categorize you in, in any category, but with that word. So that might be a good worksheet to start with. And uh, the self-blame. And you look at you know the, the language, of course there was anger. My offering is that anger is a drug. It's not an emotion. Anger is a drug. It's no different than alcohol or pot or anything else. It's a way to anesthetize ourselves against feeling what's moving within us. And changing those energetic patterns, which are probably generational. So what you handed us was a, just a whole description of, okay, here's, here's where my work is. My, you know, uh, Shakespeare says, my words fly up and my thoughts remain below. So each of those topics would be a fit place for you to go in and clean up your multi-generational database, your carbon-based memory, to free yourself of those inclinations and those energetic patterns. Okay, and the work that would be the starting point. Okay, and the worksheets. To be honest, I haven't seen them in thirty years. I do remember them because I did a lot of them. Um, what's right. the best way for me to get, that, get them right now? It's on the website. The best way for you to get them, you can do it right this instant while we're on the phone. Is go to your app store. Oh. And in your app store, we have the world's only forgiveness app. Okay. Type in Heartland. Heartland. Type in Heartland. H E A R T L A N D. One word. Aramaic. A R A M A I C. Forgiveness. You'll see kind of a red glowing heart come up somewhere in the first few things that come up in response to that, depending which phone you've got an iPhone or an Android. Okay. There it is. And if you install that, you'll, you've got a totally, completely private uh, app that we purposely, because, of course, people put some pretty intimate stuff in their worksheets, we purposely designed the app so there's only one permission that as your phone gets to use the Internet in order to function. Uh, so you can, there are two different versions of the worksheet in the app. Anywhere in the app, you can click a button and ask a question, hit send, and Jeannie will get it on the next radio show. We'll answer it, and she'll send you back an email telling you where the, we answered it. And so you can do the worksheet right there, ask questions. If you complete the worksheet and you decide you want to save your worksheets, then you can do that to a PDF, and it will ask for one more permission, and that is to, to store the information on your drive. And then it's totally, completely private. No, no, you know, asking to dial your phone or access your contacts or any of this task for. Okay. That's the easiest Excellent. way, fastest way to get to it. Excellent. I will do that. And I'd suggest you re-listen and just listen to each word that you spoke. And, and, you know, as I say, there were six or eight worksheets, but you just be bang, bang, bang. That will help to clean up what's in carbon-based memory for you. 
and and that's the whole idea of the forgiveness process. And way back when you uh, came to Heartland on that many many years ago, I was teaching first century Aramaic forgiveness, but I had no clue how it worked. You'll remember the core of the process. In fact, you haven't done cheat in 30 years. The core of the process is that you look at a goal that you held for whoever the object of attention is. So in this case, the goal would be, let's say, when you call self stupid, the goal would be Peter, would be self. And then what did I want from Peter? Oh, I wanted to, him to act more intelligently. Or I wanted him, and now, and now, and it's really important that you look at the true goal behind this whole circumstance. So some of the variety of goals in that situation that might be key to the the healing of the underlying dynamic in your mind. So some of the worksheets might be, oh, I wanted to act more intelligently. It might be, I wanted to preserve my money. It might be, I wanted them to treat me fairly. It might be, you know, there, there could be a, a wide variety of goals, only you would know what the exact goal is, and so you put that goal in place. And then, again, if you remember from the worksheet, the key step, once you've established the goal you had for whoever you're focusing on, Peter, you could also do worksheets around that same idea around the relative, then what you do is you cancel the goal. And... You know, when I first started teaching the forgiveness process, when I first started to understand it from the Aramaic, I I would actually in the early days I would mention it, but it never really particularly impressed me, and I didn't engage in it at that time. And after a couple of years of mentioning it in my workshops here and there, I'd have people come back to me saying, you know, I've been doing that, canceling goals things. That's really powerful. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. And and then ultimately, as I learned it, that became really the core of what I've done for the last 40-some years. So I have this wonderful goal uh, to speak about my. let's say this is a worksheet on Peter, and I want to speak about myself honorably. That's the core of this issue. Let's say that's the goal. So now what I do is I take that goal from step three and I take it down to step five and I cancel it. And, you know, you go, wait a minute, that's a perfectly good goal. Why would I cancel that? This is a piece I couldn't explain 30 years ago when you came to Heartland that I didn't understand. And actually it took me mm, about 35 years to to understand working full-time with the first century Aramaic work. You came in at about the, I think, around the 10-year point or so, but it took me about 35 years to understand and be able to explain what I can now lay out in, you know, a minute and a half. And you'll notice that, you know, unless you're just a a generally miserable person, which I know you're not, but unless you are, uh, you'll notice that you're pretty happy with virtually everybody as long as you're doing everything you want them to do. They're fulfilling all your goals. Hey, you're cool with them, right? But notice that when somebody doesn't fulfill a goal you hold for them, whether it's yourself looking in the mirror, whether it's your spouse, your child, your parent, your neighbor, or this relative, that's when the mind goes into hostility and fear. And when the mind goes into hostility or fear, and we speak or think as though the cause of our hostility or fear is outside of us, then we're cut off from being able to heal that hostility or fear. 
And the hostility of here tends to accumulate, 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 and accumulate until we go nuts. And, you know, and hostility isn't a, a big enough drug, then, you know, it takes something else, something else, something else to, to keep the pain anesthetized. So yep. when you get to this step where you cancel the goal, you don't cancel the goal because you don't want that. You don't cancel the goal because, you, you know, it's silly. It's, I mean, it's a perfectly good goal. It's exactly what I want. I cancel it because I notice that every time I put it in my mind, my mind goes into some sort of hostility or fear. So the goal is the driver of perception. You know, you might remember from way back when we were using this research 30 years ago that um, psychologists at Harvard did some research where they showed that in a time frame where there were 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity happening in the brain, they could hook people up to electrodes, 10,000 brain cells were firing. And what they determined was the max amount of data that went into conscious awareness, went into constructing that mind's perception in a particular time frame, which is about a 25th of a second, was nine bits. So we metaphorically, I'm not meaning it absolutely literally, but we metaphorically refer to it as the nine-bit mind. So 10,000 brain cells are firing, and I only get to see nine bits of data in conscious awareness. Obviously, if that's true, and it's some of the most uh, long-standing, it goes way back into the 50s and most quoted research in psychological history, that nine-bit mind and 10,000 brain cells are firing, obviously something has to determine which nine bits of data the mind's going to use to build our perception. And what I now understand and couldn't explain back then is the, the driver for perception, the thing that determines whether the mind uses sane data or corrupt data, which is all data based in hostility or fear is corrupt data, the thing that determines it, drives the process, is our goals. So what happens in a situation like that, where I'm doing a worksheet on myself and, you know, I've established a goal, then I cancel that goal. What happens is my perception, based in that aberrant part of my mind that holds what I propose is probably a message you got from a power person about being broken or not being smart enough or whatever it is that would have those words fly up, into awareness, when you cancel that goal, that perception that's based in those underlying dynamics that Sapolsky talked about in this article, oh, these, no neuron fires on its own, they're boom, 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 all this stuff's going on, who could ever figure that out? Nobody could ever figure it out. But here's what you can do. You can recognize, and this is the genius of Yeshua 2,000 years ago in forgiveness, you can cancel the goal that's driving that perceptual construct that's based in corrupt data, and the construct collapses. When it collapses in on itself, if you get quiet, you'll notice there's the instruction to breathe. The step before you cancel the goal, you bring love present. And what happens is by this thing collapsing in on itself, you have access to the to a, the footprint to the underlying energetic, the corrupt data that underlies it. I use a visual. It's not a very happy uh, situation, but it's a perfect visual. Everybody's memorized well the visual of the 9-11 towers dropping into their own footprint. So if you think about perception as the top of the tower and it drops right into its own footprint, now you've got access to the hidden part of the mind, to the unconscious part of the mind.
And when you bring that part of the mind forward, you've created a space. Now that you've collapsed what was occupying this nine-bit screen of awareness, there's now room for the underlying energetic dynamic to come forward. And when it comes forward in the presence of active love, if there's anything corrupt, fraudulent, or untrue about it, that exposure instantly dissolves the underlying dynamic, the underlying energy. And that's forgiveness. When the corrupt data in our own minds, which tends to be generational, it's been going on you know, for generations and generations and generations, when we access that directly in the presence of love, then we're freed of its influence. And that's first century Aramaic forgiveness, where you know, the Greek culture came along and took that because they didn't have any clue of everything I just explained and said, oh, yes, there you are. Look at that relative that caused all that trouble and stole that money from you. Well, you just be big about it. You just forgive them. You let them off the hook because you're in rage and fear and pain and self-condemnation, whatever, whatever all the dynamics are. Let them off the hook for it. Which, when you think about it, it's a pretty silly piece of advice. If my mind's producing, my physiology's producing all of this, what benefit is to me if I let them off the hook for what I'm doing to myself? So what happened is the Greeks came along and substituted pardoning for forgiveness. So now I let this person, I let you off the hook, I let you off the hook, I let you off the hook. And that does nothing to change the dynamics that are going on inside of me that I'm hiding from myself, that I've dissociated from. Okay, and Dr. Ben, turning the other cheek, define that, because after our intensive, I changed my mind on what people still interpret it as. How would you define it now, turn the other cheek? Well, it's interesting. The person who originally uh, introduced me to the Aramaic language is Rocco, a gentleman named Rocco Erico. And uh, it's interesting. We've, we used to, you know, I, I have a center in Atlanta. I used to bring him into my center, and he used to bring me into his center in California. And we worked together for years. And he very, very deeply resisted the whole Aramaic idea of forgiveness, but that's another story. But uh, according to Rocco, there's a lot of double entendre and humor in Yeshua's words and teachings. And one interpretation he gives that turn the other cheek is that it's time to turn around and show them the other set of cheeks that you have and walk away, according to Rocco Erico. Okay. Very and walk away recognizing that if my mind is using corrupt data here, i.e., if I'm in any form of hostility or fear, I have some work to do. And when I do that work, I will free myself of the corrupt influence of these unconscious dynamics that Sapolsky's talking about in his, his article, I, I, I step into bringing actual choice into my world by applying forgiveness, freeing myself of my denial, freeing myself of the corrupt data, and then originating, doing something that no other creature on the earth can do, originating something new, something that hasn't been seen before in my genes or in my family system. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So now human life arrives on earth through this human form. And that's, to me, that's the whole essence of what Yeshua is working to get people to do is like show up as who you are rather than play out who you're not. You know, at one point he says, in order for you to live, 
and I'd, I'd add to that, in order for you being to live, created essence to live, he says, you've got to die. It's like, wait, wait a minute, what do I do? But cancel the thought, what do I do? Put a bullet in my head? That's, that's crazy. But what he's saying is there's a false self made up primarily of power person dynamics that plays out in our minds as what we do and who we are. And he says that, that self's got to go in order for the true being that you are to come into, to incarnate in this world and to come into expression through this form we call a multi-generational database, a body-mind unit. Otherwise, we're stuck with the influences and inclinations that Sapolsky's talking about, of you know, well, all these neurons and who knows what goes into generational patterns. That's where most people live, is in that. And they make decisions, you know. If something fires in brain cells, yep, that's what I do. As opposed to where, where choice really lies is the instant something fires in brain cells, oh, I'm enraged about that happening, I stop and go, oh, wait a minute, rage means that my mind's using corrupt data. I've got to apply forgiveness here to get rid of this corrupt data so that I can have a clear mind to see truly and clearly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm stepping into living as a human being that has the power of choice, that higher spiritual faculty. Right. Is that all fit? Yeah, it does. Thank you, Doctor. Cool. Sorry for hugging, taking up your show here, but oh, you're you're not taking so up good. the show at all. This is exactly what we're here for. We're with you, and as long as you have another question, we're here to to answer it and move with it. And you know, tomorrow when you're in line and somebody else has got the floor, then they've got the floor, and that's always been the way the show has been. It's until we're complete. That's it. There's no such thing as, oh, you have to get off for somebody else. That other person, when they have their turn, will have the floor totally, too. So, so you can let go of that one and just, if, if there's another thought here, another thing to, uh, to process, let's go for it. No, I feel great right now. Um, a lot to think over here. Or, first thing is the worksheet. Awesome. Awesome. There's the key. There's where the resolution is, is that, and each time you apply forgiveness, what happens is you clean up another little piece of all those influences that Sapolsky's offering here that take away choice. And he's right. They take away choice. And when we live in denial, when we pretend that something outside of us is the cause of what's moving inside of us, then we guarantee that what's moving inside of us, the truth about it is hidden. And now we've just agreed to be subject to every unconscious force that there is going on within us, as opposed to being conscious, active, present love, and functioning out of our human lives. Uh, just one comment on the intensive. Uh, when, when you do have another one, I'd like to go. Uh, it's been a long time. But when I left your intensive, I think I stayed an extra week to teach or something. But... Um, People, my fellow pilots all said, my God, you look 10 years younger. What did you do? And it was just from the three weeks yep, of being yep. at heart. They literally yep. said 10 years younger. So, I guess. Yeah, and the average person, when they do an intensive where we do the fresh and raw food and all, they take off anywhere from 20 to 40 pounds. Yeah. As well, so, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we... we 
at this point, our next, our earliest next intensive will be next summer, and I'm not sure whether we're going to do a, a heartland season next year. We haven't reopened since COVID struck. We actually did our last intensive season there in 2019, and COVID hit. We did one intensive here locally just before COVID came in, and then we were going to do something this past summer, and frankly, it just got to be too much work, and so we let it go. And... Uh, we're looking at next summer. I don't know what's going to happen, but if you're ready and it sounds like you're right on track, especially when you're thinking about, you know, this relative and what's gone on and what's happened there, uh, there is a uh, codependence to interdependence communication practicum that we actually did two of back-to-back, and it went to some really powerful places. It covers several different workshops. Why is this happening to me again? Healing through relationships. Communication, did you hear what I think I said? Uh, mind shifters, uh, still point breathing, and codependence to interdependence. And that is available as a package includes, I don't know if you remember, we did the personal code evaluation where you get to do a, a, a psyche valve kind of thing that, that uh, tells you where your biggest blocks are and gives some specific assignments. So, so it includes a pre and post, and there's 90 hours of live video uh, from those two workshops, all of the teaching, the questions, the answers, the processing. It's, it was monumental uh, happening. Uh, that we did back-to-back. So that's if you're ready to jump into something, that would be the place to go. And that whole package, I mean, it's it's back when we did it live, it was an $1,800 package to do online, and the whole thing, including the evaluation pre and post, is $600. So that would probably be a good place to start if you're ready to move to the next level. Okay. Well, I'm going to keep moving forward. I appreciate your help. All right. Well, hold the space, my friend. All right, take care. Blessings. All right, Miss Jeannie. We've got about 15 minutes here. Do we have anybody else on the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? Nope, it is all quiet. We've actually got 13 okay. minutes. 13 minutes, okay. Well, let's move. Let's go for it. So I'm going to go on and just continue to... Uh, to read this article and comment on the principles involved with this work. So so he goes on to talk about, so look at the forces that brought the student to the professor's office uh, and the fact that they were feeling empowered to challenge the, the professor's point. So he's talking about his students coming in. They're more likely to, he's talking about now, what are the influences for these people? And, and again, my offering is these are inclinations, they're not choices. So they're more likely to have had parents who themselves were college-educated, more likely to hail from an individualistic culture than a collective one. All of those influences subtly nudge behavior in predictable ways. You may have had the uncanny experience of talking about an upcoming camping trip with a friend, only to find yourself served with ads for tents on social media. The phone didn't record your conversation, even if that's what it feels like. It's just that the collective record of your likes, clicks, searches, and shares paints such a detailed picture of your preferences and decision-making patterns, does use the word correctly there, that logarithms can predict, often with unsettling accuracy, what you're going to do. And it's true. If you knew every piece of data in a database, 
you can predict everything that database will produce in any circumstance. It's, it's totally predictable. However, humans, if they go beyond denial in the mind and they undo the corrupt ad in the mind, remember denial hides data, humans have the ability to originate, not just execute, as seemingly everything else in the creation is limited to doing. And, you know, it, it's like you can almost imagine the moment where the creator says, you know, I've been in control of all life. You know, the fox in the foxhole doesn't argue with me when the inclination, you know, the signal comes, there's a flood coming, it moves up the hill. There, nothing questions what's built into its genes as action. And then you could almost hear the creator saying, so now... I'm going to bestow a new gift upon the world, and that is the ability to originate. So now, man, I'm going to give you something that no one else has. There is no free will in the creation, but I'm going to give it to you. You now have the ability to bring something new to your mind and change the direction of the inclinations within your structure. In fact, again, you could almost imagine the creator saying, and you know what? You can even go against me. Now, it's interesting in the Aramaic language, the word law is not, as kings would have you believe, as we've been brainwashed to believe, the rule of a superior. The word law simply means how it works. So, we can, with free will, go against how it works. And the creator, you can imagine, as the creator says, now, look, here's how the energy system's set up. I'm letting you know how it works. If you want to go against it and bang your head on it, you can do it. You may think you're being punished for going against it, but I promise you there's nothing but the presence of active love here for me. There is no punishment in the system, but if you go against the way it works, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to be beat, bruised, and broken by your avoidable collision with the law with the way it works. Crash into the law, and you'll be broken by those avoidable collisions. And they are avoidable. And so there's where understanding this idea of law being simply the way it works. Now, man from the beginning has always wanted to become their own lawmaker. <laughs> I want to determine the way it works. I don't want to kowtow to the way the creation is set up. And men have done all kinds of things to try to <laughs> come their own. Well, you know, you take a look at it, and every year what we elect 535 members to a thing called Congress, and, and we actually call them lawmakers. You know, it wasn't very many centuries ago that humans would never think about calling themselves lawmakers. You know, there is a way that the energy system is organized and the way that the energy system works. And we're the only creature that we know of that can go against that, that can go opposite that. And so in, in uh, Sapolsky's example, he goes on and says, this is what happens when you reach for a pen. There are so many factors beyond your conscious awareness brought to you that the pen 
that it, pardon me, with reaching for the pen, that it's hard to say how much you choose to pick it up at all. And it, it goes on to explain what some of Sapolsky's inclinations were. So Sapolsky, it tells us, was raised in an Orthodox Jewish household in Brooklyn, the son of immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Biology called to him early. By grade school, he was writing fan letters to primatologists and lingering in front of the taxidermied gorillas at the American Museum of Natural History. But religion shaped his life at home. He says that he told the writer of this article that all this changed in a single night in his early teens. While he was grappling with the question of faith and his identity, he was struck by an epiphany that kept him awake until dawn and reshaped his future. God is not real. There is no free will. And we primates are pretty much on our own. That's a pretty interesting set of conclusions for one to come to. And I certainly understand with him acknowledging that that's what shaped his thinking, why he was in that mode of operation and came to the conclusion there's no free will. So he says, they quote him, that was kind of a big day, he says with a chuckle, and it's been tumultuous ever since. The article goes on to say, skeptics could seize on this to rebut his arguments. If we aren't free to choose our actions or belief, how does a boy from a deeply religious conservative home become a self-professed liberal atheist? Change is always possible, he argues, but it comes from external stimuli. Sea slugs can learn to reflexively retreat from an electrical shock. Though the same, pardon me, through the same biocomponent, humans are changed by exposure to external events in ways we rarely see coming. Imagine he offers that a group of friends go to see the biopic about an inspiring activist. One applies the next day to join the Peace Corps. One is struck by the beautiful cinematography and signs up for a filmmaking course. The rest are annoyed that they didn't see a Marvel film. All of the friends were primed to respond as they did when they sat down to watch. Maybe one had heightened adrenaline from a close call with another car on the drive over. Maybe another was in a new relationship when it was a watch with oxytocin, the so-called love hormone. They had different levels of dopamine and serotonin in their brains, different cultural backgrounds, different sensitives to sensory distractions in the theater. None chose how the stimulus of the film would affect them any more than a sea slug decided to wince in response to a jolt. Now, I'm in 100% agree with with him if somebody is only functioning out of carbon-based memory. It's true. And remember, carbon-based memory, you know, if we we hauled your carcass into a a lab and broke it all down into its constituent components, we would say the base element in your structure is carbon. And in the carbon atom, a natural carbon atom, there are six electrons, six protons, six neutrons. You might recognize that number, 666, carbon atom. And it's a number in the ancient teachings. And remember that the ancient teachings that we call scriptures were simply about reclaiming the truth of who we are as human beings and functioning as human beings. Men turn it into religion because there's great profit in controlling other people and keeping them in fear and you know, all the crazy stuff that goes with it. But when you get down to the Aramaic and what the original direction 
and propulsion of the whole structure is to restore human beings to choice, to return us to where, to our original birthright, that of conscious creators and choosing rather than reacting. You look at that word. How did you react? How did you redo an act that was done on a previous occasion? How did you replay what has gone on generation after generation after generation? You know, you look at that book and it says, look to the, and they're saying the same thing as, as he's saying here, look to the lives of the fathers for ours are but a shadow of theirs upon the earth. In other words, most people are just playing out the program. You Go back and you hear this story about Adam and, and in the story, and remember, this is a metaphor for everybody's life. It's just, you know, here's the journey we go through. So what does it say? It says Adam, now look at the word Adam, Adamos means red clay, carbon-based memory, body-mind unit, storage system for information. And it says Adam fell into a deep sleep. And you'll notice that nowhere do they talk about him waking up. Until thousands of years later, when they talk about awake in Christ. Now again, subtract religion from this. This is just about how to get to be a conscious human being. So people come into the world, and they fall asleep in carbon-based memory, Adamos, and they remain asleep, and they are, as Sapolsky is proposing, nothing but automatons, playing out whatever's there. And then comes the influence or the awakening to the mind of love in us, to the presence of our human selves, our human beingness as love. And love, the created essence of the human, is the aspect of ourselves that has the higher faculties that move us to a place where we, in fact, do have free will. So there's carbon-based memory, 666, the Antichrist. What is that? What would the Antichrist be? If, if the Christ is the mind of love in you, they talk about the mind that Christ used. They talk about the mind of Christ in you. You have the mind of love in you. That's where choice lies. That's where the five higher faculties, and tomorrow we'll talk about the higher faculties. That's where the five higher faculties exist, and the non-being mind, the mind of Adam, has a cheap copy of each of those. We'll go into what the cheap copy is so you can start to see the difference and distinguish in them. And so that's where we're going to head tomorrow, and we'll take the whole conversation to the next level, and I'll look forward to whatever interaction comes from it. I'm excited that we're getting to do this, uh, this piece of information. So thanks for joining us, everybody. Create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world, and blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pache as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Mind Shifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, 
please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.